Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great podcast. The First Draft Podcast with ESPN experts Mel Kuyper Jr., Todd McShay, and Phil Yates. Keeping tabs on the latest in the NFL draft is now twice a week, posting every Monday and Thursday. Be sure to check out Monday's show on YouTube as well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, we're going to talk about a couple basketball players. You just make me scratch my head sometimes. Also, we got your stories about people quitting their jobs in the middle of their shifts. But first... All right, man. Second round of the NBA playoffs has begun. Like for me, I feel like the second round is the best round of the playoffs, right? It's the overall most enjoyable round of the playoffs, right? Because part of it is you can get to the conference finals. A couple teams get swept or whatever. You just ain't got enough variety in it. But the second round, you still got the potential for the ups and downs. You still have potential for what we really term as legitimate upsets because there's the variance in between who the teams are. And I feel like this year, the second round is kind of what I've been trying to say about the NBA and the direction they need to look at, which is, do you see everything about the league that is on display right now? Like, we can take this back to the first round and just look at the post-LeBron generation is here. Like, we have arrived. But I think the other part of it that gets kind of lost is that kind of with the exception of Steph Curry, the post-Kevin Durant generation is here, right? Like, they have arrived. Because Durant and LeBron are four years apart in terms of when they entered the NBA. Now, I would hesitate to say that that means that these are two guys of separate generations. Like, that feels like a bit too much of a stretch. Except, Do you think of Michael Jordan and Magic and Larry Bird as being of the same generation? Because they came into the league five years apart. Now, if you think about it that way, I feel like you think of LeBron and Durant at the very least of being men of somewhat different times. There was a measure of overlap in their times, but still men of different times nonetheless. And I think that's an important distinction to make. So now we look at who's left in the postseason. As things stand, you got a lot of these old heads down there in Miami, but even still, that's largely like post-LeBron situation. You got Draymond Green and you got Steph Curry and Klay Thompson came in the league, wow, like seven, eight years after LeBron. So that's like clearly a jump that is behind. But even Steph came in the league six years after LeBron, right? That's past, and I want to be very clear that what I'm saying here is not shade to LeBron, but the league, like you think about this, about the way it went in the last decade with kind of the omnipresence of LeBron James. You realize that like Warriors-Cavs never turned into a rivalry? Like it never turned into a real live rivalry because it was kind of all in the context of LeBron James. Now, I think part of why it didn't like full on turn into a rivalry was they had Steph and Kevin Durant for those last couple, you know, two, three years of that, right? Like that, that makes people look at it a little bit different. 
But even still, like I feel like you got teams that go to the finals against each other four times. And there was a measure of push-pull, but I feel like the dominant narrative was not about which team was better, but it just went into LeBron James and Michael Jordan, right? And I think my man Rod, check out the Black Guy Who Tips podcast, my man Rod makes the point very well about this, that since it was not about the best player of the time, it was just a discussion about the best player of all time. Anybody that we thought wasn't in competition to be the best player of all time we ain't even really talk about them. You know, like it wasn't like good enough for you to just really like somebody. You almost had to justify the fact that you really liked them based upon where their legacy was or anything else. Like that, that, that's what that seemed to come down to. Well, all of that is basically out of the playoffs right now, right? Like all you can manage to do is look at and focus on the guys that are here. And with focusing on the guys that are here, I try not to get too caught up in the legacy stuff about people who are actually still playing, but there's legacy play stuff here. Like I think there's long runs, legacy play stuff, and also kind of short run. Now, of course, the short run stuff, I try my hardest not to get too caught up in because those are the things that can ultimately be erased. But you think about this. There's a distinct possibility that Giannis is going to be a two-time MVP, two-times finals MVP, two-time champion at the end of this season. Yo, that's huge. That is rare. Like, off the top of my head, the people who can say that are like, Kobe, no, Kobe can't say that because he didn't have two MVPs. LeBron James, Michael Jordan, keep going. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, you know what I mean? But, like, that's the class of player that we're talking about now, that we're going to have to talk about Giannis as being there. There's obviously the Chris Paul discussion in Phoenix and the fact that he might be that guy that winds up getting there, right? Or he's just the guy that, I mean, Vinny makes the point. Just about every generation got a great player that's got to take a championship L, and maybe it's just Chris Paul, right? Like, maybe maybe he's just the one. He has to be Charles Barkley, right? Like, he has to be that guy. that That's the dude to take the L. Uh, Luka Doncic finally made it, and it finally feels unfair because he's in his fourth year in the league, but he has made it to the second round of the playoffs, right? That is big on how we view him at least in the short run. So there's so much cool stuff that's going on right now, and I'm glad to have it. Now, Gabe, did you watch uh, the Warriors and the Grizzle on Sunday? Bits and pieces of it, yes. Okay, so a couple interesting things for me in that. I'm going to love this series. I can already tell, all right? Number one, y'all kept telling me about that Jordan Poole, right? Y'all was on the, you know, hey, Jordan Poole, Jordan Poole, Jordan Poole. And I'm like, yeah, well, let me see something. Let me see this Jordan Poole. Hey, guys, Jordan Poole, he's pretty good at basketball. <laughs> like, he is definitely better than the last times that I had watched him play. Because my skept- a big part of my skepticism about the Warriors is the Warriors as they were and when they were winning. And I want to think about this without Kevin Durant because, duh, they don't have Kevin Durant, Right. But it hinged upon having a superstar level of Steph Curry that, I mean, I think even Warriors fans would say, this is not a 2015 version of Steph Curry. This isn't even a 2021 version of Steph Curry, right? Now, he's looked pretty good in these playoffs so far, but what you saw in the regular season, like with Steph Curry shooting 38% from three, like that's pretty good, but ain't nobody calling you Steph Curry off shooting 38% from three. That's not what it is. But my thing was, we betting a lot on Klay Thompson coming back off an Achilles tear and an ACL tear over the age of 30 to like expect him to come back and be the Klay Thompson that he was before. Like That's not hating. I just think that you're wildly optimistic in that. But if you can get a, some of that slack picked up, 
by Jordan Poole, then okay, we're having a different discussion. And what I think is going to wind up coming down to for the Warriors as this gets deeper, is Draymond Green going to be an offensive liability or not? Because what can get them in trouble is when you don't have to pay any attention at all to Draymond Green when he has the ball away from the basket. And if he can't make teams pay for leaving him open, then the Warriors are going to wind up having a bit of a problem. Because if that happens, then basically Jaron Jackson can be back there playing center field. And that ain't what you want, dog. Like, if you're the Warriors, you don't want no parts of that. But I was watching that game, and you had basically the steely experience of the Warriors against all that crump coming in from the other side, from the grizzle, man. The grizzle go hard. John Morant, I'm trying to think about this. And Gabe, I want to ask you this, just as you as somebody who grew up watching a different generation of basketball than I did, right? You have watched more of this pace and space, spread it out, get shots up, this super-duper value on skill thing. Can you think of the last time a dude came into the NBA who was just like, I'm here to get to the basket? Like, this is what I do. I go downhill hard all the time, other than Russell Westbrook. Like, is that it? Yeah, that's exactly who I was going to mention, was Westbrook, because I feel like he's the probably the most exciting player that's come out of the draft in terms of like slashing, dunking, and people immediately talking about like, oh, I wonder how long his career is going to last at that yeah. level, how far he can sustain, just because usually those guys get hurt. Yes, and I tell you this though, there's a level of this with Ja that Russell Westbrook never had, right? And what that level is, is the touch around the basket, right? Like I get the whole idea that Steph Curry got all the kids wanting to be out there and shoot 40-footers and all that. Do you know how much I would love a generation of kids that could finish at the rim with both hands going up and finger rolling and also cocking it back to last week and almost jumping over people and everything else? Like I'm really not sure the last time I enjoyed watching a basketball player as much as I enjoy watching John Morant. And I don't even want to talk about him in the context of winning or nothing like that. Like how much, you know, what they can ultimately do down the line. Or, you know, I don't care. I don't root for them. You know what I'm saying? I'm just watching basketball games. And I also do think it's interesting, though, that all the concern trolling about Zion and injury and everything else. You mentioned it, Gabe. You can't play like John Morant plays for very long. Right. And I think um, I think it was Jim Jackson who made the point on the broadcast. Jim Jackson, by the way, who's a really good broadcaster. Right. I know some of y'all are too young to remember Jim Jackson is like one of the greatest college basketball players of all time and a 26 point a game score in the NBA. But that dude was true. But anyway, he was just like, you can't keep hitting the floor like Josh stays going up. It's not just that he's getting banged in the air is that he stays hitting the ground. And there's just a limited shelf life on how long you can do that. But you can do it for another for, for the rest of these playoffs. Like, we'll talk about the problem when it's a problem. Right now, I'm just loving every minute of it. I enjoyed watching the Milwaukee-Boston game just because I happened to be reading Zach Lowe's column before the game. And Zach, Zach is interesting as somebody who talks about the NBA, but in that it is very molecular. Like, I mean, he gets down to real gritty details about watching it. That for me personally can be interesting, but I don't necessarily want to, I don't need to know that much. I ain't got necessarily that level of curiosity about it. But what I like about Zach when he writes about the stuff where I contrast him with somebody like, I'll put his name in it, John Hollinger, is 
I can tell how much Zach loves basketball when he writes about it. You know what I mean? Like when he talks about this stuff, the things that he finds interesting, he is more effusive in what he finds interesting than he is dismissive of things that he does not. And I read Hollinger and I'm just like, why are all your best lines for insulting people? And you never sound like you really, really enjoy the really good players. Right. But Zach Lowe really enjoys the really good stuff. But anyway, I happened to be reading his column and he made the point about Milwaukee. And I am somebody who has a critical of Mike Budenholzer because he's a I don't adjust guy. Right. I ain't really got a whole lot of time for I don't adjust guy. But there's one I don't adjust facet that I'm with Budenholzer on and is what Lowe talked a lot about and why saying even without Chris Middleton, he felt like the Bucs had a chance. Strategically, the Bucs are like this. You're not getting into paint. Y'all want to shoot all them threes. That's cool. You're not getting into paint. Like as everybody talks about this three-point revolution that has come around in the NBA, there's something to it, except for the fact that shooting three-pointers is really hard. You're not going to have a generation of Steph Curry's. That's like thinking you're going to have a generation of Babe Roots or a generation of Dr. J's. Like guys like that just don't come around that often. And so ain't but so many teams going to be able to spend all game long shooting threes, especially if they're not from the corner. And so the Bucks. You going to make them shots? Maybe you're not, but you're not getting into paint. We're not giving you easy baskets. Just because you're making a shot doesn't mean it's an easy one. They're not giving you easy ones. And so they're looking at Boston, and they're like, hey, wait a minute. You guys actually aren't that good at shooting. Have at it. And they're going to let them do stand out there and shoot. You know, so this is going to be an interesting contrast in that because to me, they say they're going to stop everything in the paint. You still got to find a way to get in there. Like strategically, you still got to do that. Meanwhile, Giannis, he's the sort of dude that can wake up and say, we're going to win this series. Like, that's what he showed us last year in the finals. Ain't that many of those type of guys left. Like, hey, hey, boys, jump on my back. Let's go. He can do that, right? I hate that Embiid got hurt because now it just feels like Philly going to get run out of the building. Like, I mean, you're talking about one of the three or four best players in the NBA, and they don't have him. Right. And everything is built around that. And if you expect the James Harden of old to show up, then nah, I just don't think that thing is going to go down. That I don't see. But Gabe, I really want to like Phoenix, Dallas, I think may be the most interesting series to me. We'll see after I actually watch a game. But don't forget, Phoenix took Aiden instead of taking Luka Doncic. And guess what? Hot take, right decision. And it's not about which one of them is better. Just think about how it wound up ending up. You think the Suns have Chris Paul if they have Luka Doncic? They don't make that move. Next question. Do you think that Luka Doncic would be the right guy to pair with Devin Booker? I do not. Uh, you know, that's a couple of heist boxes. Like, I don't know. I don't think that that would have wound up being the move. What Phoenix did in taking eight, and I know this is a bit of a non-sequitur, and we'll, you know, just give me a second on this. I've been thinking about this for a while. When it comes to the draft, it's cool if you can get the best player, but what you really just want to do is get a really good one, right? No matter how it plays, no matter how it goes, if you got a really good player out of the draft, you did well. You can get out there and start comparing to everybody else you may have had and da-da-da, but it's hard to get a really good player. And the Suns got a really good player out of that draft. And so you know that they got a really good player, because you don't hear that so much no more about how they should have taken Luke instead of getting Aiden. You notice that? That don't come up nearly as much. And Aiden is turning into a beast, by the way. 
But all of this is going to be out here, man. It's a great NBA playoffs. And I think in the end, I'll be curious to see how the numbers look. I know the, the viewership numbers are up you know, early in the first round. But I think you're going to wind up seeing it's a league that doesn't need to focus on one guy anymore. And that's the best thing the NBA can be. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training. Just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. Spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. Feel like we had a little bit of a misunderstanding over the weekend on Twitter. Not a, like, complete misunderstanding, but I do think a little bit of a misunderstanding. So, after Carl Towns played miserably in the play-in game, I was a bit hard on his play. And part of why I was a bit hard on his play is because I have been, I started off as being really into Carl Towns and then became rather skeptical of Carl Towns. And I'm not going to lie, okay? Maybe this ain't fair to Carl Towns, but this is part of it. I used to do a TV show with a dude who tried to tell me that Carl Anthony Towns could be the best player on a championship team when Carl Anthony Towns up until that point, had been out of the regular season once. He played in one playoff series, and he was second banana in the course of that. And I just couldn't understand how it could be, right? And so I would start tweeting about Carl Towns. And look, I've talked about this on this show. I just don't understand why you guys don't get this. It's really cool that Carl Towns can shoot three-pointers. But there's no point in being bigger than everybody if you don't use the fact that you're bigger than everybody. And so the fact that Carl Towns can be guarded by Dylan Brooks is a problem. That should be something that you exploit every time. They're like, yeah, well, they played Steven Adams off the floor. Okay, cool. Did they miss him? Right? If you can play Steven Adams off the floor and then you put Dylan Brooks on him and he takes Dylan Brooks to the block, now we cooking with gas. But if all you're doing is switching out Steven Adams, I don't see what it is that we're talking about here. I don't know why people don't see what I think is this obvious criticism. And maybe some of y'all were just too young to see the miseducation of Dirk Nowitzki take place in real time, where he looked up and he's got Al Harrington and Steven Jackson and Matt Barnes up under him because he can't put his back on them. And they just terrorized the number one seed out of the playoffs with Dirk Nowitzki as being, at the time, quite possibly the best player in the NBA. Except he couldn't put his back on them. And if you can't do that, if you can't impose that, then it doesn't matter how big you are. 
And so when I say that about Carl Towns, they're like, oh, there's true shooting percentage. And I'm like, I personally don't place much value in true shooting percentage as a stat. It's just got a little bit of variance within it, right? So a dude like DeAndre Jordan, because all he does is shoot. Like if DeAndre Jordan shot what he shot from the field and was a capable free throw shooter, true shooting percentage would tell us that he's like the greatest shooter of all time. And I just, I just think there's a limited value in what that number tells you. So it's a interesting thing that Carl Towns can have such a crazy true shooting percentage. And I think it's a supplementary piece of information. But I don't think it's something that you point to and say, boom, proof this guy is great. I just don't. I don't see it. So anyway, the Timberwolves lost on Saturday night. I didn't say nothing the whole series. I didn't say nothing when Carl was putting up 30s. I didn't say nothing when he was coming up short. I let the whole thing play it out. In fact, that one game, I think it was game two, where they played so terrible and people were in my mentions and being like, yeah, look at Carl. And I said, no, no, no. There is no point in doing this when everybody else on the team played badly. You can look it up. I was like, no, that's not fair. Everybody else played badly. You can't put this on Carl, okay? I wanted to let it all play out. And then it all played out. And I got up on Sunday and I said, now the series is over. Let's check in on the greatest shooting big man of all time. And I posted a picture of Carl Towns on the floor crying. Now, where I believe there was a misunderstanding is you thought I was trying to clown Carl Towns for crying. And I wasn't. I was simply trying to signify that they lost in a game where he came up short and took one of the craziest 30-footers I've ever seen. It was a 30-footer, like one of those to make you put up the picture of Carlton Banks with the fist pump after you put the shot up. Except he's not Carlton Banks. He's supposed to be Will. He's supposed to be the guy, right? And all of this, while he does all that like shushing the crowd and all of these things, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, you came up short. You're the number one overall pick. And I honestly don't like your get down. And I'm not even being that mean to him. But the fact is, he is a disappointing player. I don't think that's an incredibly harsh thing to say about somebody in the position that he's in. And oh, well, you out here saying he's soft. I think he's soft, but I wasn't saying he's soft. I said he came up a little soft. But I wasn't even going that hard on that dude, Gabe. I had people all day long telling me how I have a vendetta against Carl Towns, how mean I am to Carl Towns and all that stuff. And you know what I realized? Oh, okay, so it's just that y'all pity him. Like, that's all this comes down to, because I understand he had a rough go of it with COVID. Like, two years ago, he lost a significant number of family members. And somebody got mad at me because I said on the other show, I was too harsh in the way that I put it, but I mean this. I'm like, so... How long does a player like that avoid accountability in the name of tragedy? I mean, I really would like to know the answer to that because I don't know. Because y'all don't like the Timberwolves. I ain't never seen nobody out here in these Carl Towns jerseys. I don't see these people. Like, granted, some of it is Timberwolves fans that are coming at me. And a lot of it, by the way, is bots. Like, the Carl Towns bot army is out there. I'm not saying that he pays for them, but I'm just telling you, like, there's there's a lot that goes on there in the Carl Towns uh, situation. But... I was legitimately floored by the ways that people were claiming that I was just going out of my way like to pick on Carl Towns. Nah, man, your dude ain't it. And after seven years in the league, 
I'm blown away by the idea. Like maybe this is another factor of the LeBron James dominance of the discourse that ain't even no, no scrutiny for a number one overall pick. There's none. And the issue isn't that he's not a good player. The issue is that he's only a good player when it seems to be fairly obvious that he could be a great player. And then this year seemed to be the example. And I'm telling you, I'm, this is pure conjecture. I'm, I'm not saying I'm guessing. This feels informed, but it sure looked like he's trying to impress Patrick Beverly. Like, it sure seems like Patrick Beverly came in there and was like, yo, man, you got to have some swag about you. And now he's trying to do an impression of somebody with some swag. You know? Also, another thing that happened on Twitter, Gabe, this is always embarrassing. People were getting on Carl Towns for doing like the opera singer, blowing kisses to the crowd on the way out. And I actually had no problem with that, right? Like, I was like, good on the Timberwolves fans. It's the best season that you've had in almost 20 years. Show love to the players. And they did. And Carl Towns showed the love back. But then he started kissing his arm. And I was like, well, what the hell is that? So it, so it seems that that's where he has a tattoo honoring his mother. <laughs> and so somebody told me that. And I was like, oh, let me delete that right quick. I mean, I legitimately had no idea. I was like, why are you out here kissing your sweaty ass arm? Oh, oh, okay. Got it, got it. So then I took that down. And I had people mad at me about that. And I get it, man. Y'all want good things to happen for him. I totally understand how you can feel that way, right? But come on, man. Like, we get to say things about people. Because what's going to happen is, y'all going to coddle him, he's going to turn into Scottie Pippen. Yeah, if you see that Scottie Pippen ass, why he didn't win no defensive player of the year? And he was like, because everybody was too focused on Michael. And my contention on Scottie is, here's where Scottie got this wrong. No one gets underrated by proximity to greatness. Nobody gets underrated by proximity to greatness. We pick up some ancillary figure on championship teams all the time and make them something that they aren't, right? That ain't what, the reason you didn't get those Defensive Player of the Year awards is because they go to big men. Go look at who won, like Jordan won it in 88. Go look who won every year from 1989 until now. It's been two point guards and by my count, Ron Artest, Kawhi Leonard. I don't consider Dennis Rodman to be a small forward. And then you had like Marcus Smart and Gary Payton. But it's a big man award. LeBron James. LeBron James was the best defensive player in the NBA, probably from 2011 to 2013. Never won defensive player of the year. That's LeBron James, Scotty. It's LeBron James. That's how this goes. And then I stop and I think about things I've said about Scottie Pippen for the longest and I contend this there's two kinds of basketball fans the kind that thinks Scottie Pippen is overrated and the kind that thinks Scottie Pippen is underrated there's there's that that's about it I don't know what actual rating is for Scottie Pippen but you ask people they'll tell you they think he's overrated or they'll tell you they think he's underrated it really ain't much in between that's how it goes with him and part of that I think is a lot of y'all kind of just feel bad for him y'all relate to being the other dude right and, I mean, there's been a lot of pain in Scotty's life, obviously, a lot of things that he's gone through and everything else. But he be showing up like a sucker when it comes to this. Y'all be out here lying about that dude. Lying. Gabe, I was online, and somebody I respect told me that he thought the Chicago Bulls would be worse if they switched out Scotty Pippen for Charles Barkley. Let me explain something to you youngsters. If the Bulls had Charles Barkley instead of Scotty Pippen, they would win 70 games a year. 
But we have come up with all these reasons to say how good Scotty is. That's where you get into that the best all-around player, right? That's the title you come up with for somebody that you don't think is actually that good at but so many things. Like he did a Catholic, you know what I mean? Like, oh, he's the best all-around player. We have come up with all these different ways to say that Scottie Pippen is this and say that Scottie Pippen is that. And I really think it just comes down to the fact that y'all just feel bad for that dude. That's it. And I just don't analyze my basketball that way. We can start with, man, I feel bad for that dude, comma, anyway. And then we go on about our business. I don't think that makes me mean. Do you think that makes me mean? And if I sound defensive, it's because I really felt like y'all were acting like I was bullying somebody that I wasn't bullying, you know? And that does make me a bit defensive because I don't see myself as a bully. However, when those people tell me that, I got to admit, the people who tell me that, I then want to bully them because I feel like y'all are suckers. Stop doing that. If you haven't heard, it's brought to you by the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax. CarMax, here to innovate. We know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day. No need for the social media feeds. We got you. Now, if you haven't heard. All right, Bo, this first story comes from health. Hi, my name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm a culture writer for BuzzFeed News, and I am delighted to be with you. Y'all, I wrote a story about a surgeon in LA who performs a surgery to make men taller. It's not exclusively men, but the vast majority of his patients are men. The surgery costs $75,000, and heads up to the squeamish folks listening, but it involves breaking both of your femurs, inserting a titanium rod with magnetic gears, and if you think that's painful, wait until you hear about the recovery, because it involves using an external device that activates those gears, so the patient gets about one millimeter taller per day for 80 days. And with a shout out and respect for the metric system, by the time they're done lengthening, patients get about 3.15 inches taller. The main subject for the story is a 25-year-old man named Scott. He was about 5'7 before the surgery. Now he's 5'10, which makes him one inch taller than the average American man. Scott told me before the surgery, he was being mocked at work, he was seeing short men mocked on social media all the time, and it was really hurting him. He told me he was waking up every day, two hours before his alarm, crying. When I met him, it was two months after the surgery, and he was walking with a walker. Now, four months after the surgery, he can drive again. He's not using a walker, but it's going to be a few more months before he can play sports. How did a 25-year-old man come up with 75 Gs? Great question. Here's the short answer. He started an OnlyFans account and he found a niche, financial domination, which is a form of humiliation kink where men pay him to degrade them and take their money. So Gabe hit me and said, hey, one of the stories you chose for if you haven't heard is not available but I have another one that I think is perfect for you. And I said, I trust you. And I had a feeling it was this one. I had only seen the headline. I did not bother to inquire in depth about how this works for the little homies trying to get taller. I have to admit, in fairness to the little homies, okay? I have made that jump from 5'7 to 5'10. And I gotta say, the inflection point on how you're treated is somewhere between those two. Right. Like I can imagine that when he gets out there, his whole world is going to be a whole lot different. I do believe that right now. Am I willing to have both of the largest bones in my body broken in order to make this happen? 
I don't know, right? But that's also like me saying, I wouldn't sell plasma for money. Well, I don't have to. You know what I'm saying? Like, I recognize that. When it comes to the height game, I'm actually probably richer than I am in the money game. I'm only moderate rich in the money game. In the height game, I lord over, like, a lot more you, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. So anyway, I don't know if I can judge anybody for going through what appears to be this level of excruciating pain in order to get taller. What I am blown away by, and look, man, everybody do their thing a different way. I understand that. We all different. We all built in, you know, these ways or whatever. And I recognize that a lot of people get off on being like tall bad too and to being degraded. You know, I got no judgment on that. What is a surprise here about the account they described is this is just some little man on the internet and he is telling you what you not and you you are turned on by being degraded by somebody five foot seven somebody by the way so not comfortable with himself that he just had both his legs broken and he ain't even gonna get to be six feet and you paid money for that man to ridicule you some things ain't for me to understand i get that i really really do but honestly I think you might want to go talk to somebody about that. It feels like there's got to be something underneath. I can't believe. I'm sorry. I'm trying to. I'm trying to come back around. I just the rest of it is like okay, it happens, you know, bruh. He got 75 G's. Get me, Gabe. I need you to understand something. I be doing cameos and donating the money to the families of sick children, and I ain't made 75 G's doing that in like three years. That's all I'm saying. You know what? You want to go on cameo? I mean, Gabe, you've heard it. I can make somebody feel really small. I can do that. Maybe I need to rebrand my cameo, right? Have Bomani make you feel small. I build a hospital for them kids. All right. This next one comes from education. Hi, it's Annie Gowan, a reporter from the Washington Post based in the Midwest. I recently got back from Llano County, Texas, which is a small county in Texas's hill country just outside of Austin, which has been in an uproar over its library since last fall. That's when a group of conservative Christians and members of the local Tea Party chapter began emailing county officials worried about what they called quote-unquote filth in the public libraries. Most of the books they complained about were related to subjects like transgender teens or sex ed or race, but the list also included some very innocuous books like Maurice Sendak's classic picture book in the night kitchen. Officials subsequently dissolved the library board and replaced it with these same activists, closed the meetings to the public, cut off access to ebooks, and fired a librarian who pushed back against them. So this debate is rooted in the so-called parental rights movement, which was sparked initially by parental anger at school boards over mask mandates and other COVID measures, which expanded into book challenges in public schools last summer. So the American Library Association recorded 729 challenges to library materials in 2021, which is a record since they began tracking in 2000. But what's concerning now is that this movement has expanded from schools into public libraries. We're now seeing conservative activists in several states, including Texas, Montana, and Louisiana, joining forces with like-minded officials to dissolve library governing bodies, rewrite censorship protections, or remove books outside of official challenge procedures. And so, of course, the danger is, according to the anti-censorship proponents that only one viewpoint is now going to be okayed in these public libraries. In Llano County, 
a citizens group just filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging county officials saying that their constitutional rights were violated when they unilaterally removed these books like the Sendak book. In other words, just because they simply disagreed with the ideas within them. Okay, so in 11th grade, we were assigned to read a book. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I am not sure if between fifth grade and 11th grade, I actually read any book that was assigned in school. The reason was they never explained to me why it was that we was reading these books. It seemed to me that we would read these books and you give me a quiz on some minutia just to see if I read the book and then I turn it back in. And that just felt stupid to me, right? It felt like a memory test. You know, they don't explain stuff to kids. And I was a kid that needed things explained. But anyway, in 12th grade, I took a dual credit class where we were getting college credit for it. And so I kind of had to read them books now, you know. And so I say that to say that I had wished I had actually read those books along the way rather than just try to pass the quizzes because there was a book in 11th grade called Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. I did not read it, but I do remember the point and it was pretty interesting. And the... Fahrenheit 451, and I believe, Gabe, correct me if I'm wrong, 451 is the temperature at which, like, paper catches on fire. The story of the book is, it is about a place where you call the fire department not to put out fires, but to set fires. And they were burning up all the books. And I don't know if 11th grade me would have been capable of appreciating the message that they had because it just seemed so outlandish, such an idea. I think maybe some of us need to go read Fahrenheit 451 and just see what they was talking about. That's all I'm saying, because this is wild. Like, just the, the idea cutting off mere access to books. Mere access to books. And it's the same people doing this that's always complaining about somebody getting canceled or the idea it look you know people like oh their problem isn't with cancel culture their problem is with accountability well they're two different things right there is i do believe what i would term a like culture of cancellation and it is a lot of people's immediate reflex to try to deplatform someone who says something they don't like. I do think that tendency has come up because people struggle to tell the difference between something being a problem and something just being something that you don't like. And on top of that, people get very, 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 people expect the folks that they rock with to bat a thousand on stuff. Not even bet a thousand on getting it right, but bet a thousand on agreement. That's the game that they going for. I do think, that there is something that is a bit out of hand to the idea. I think it's easier because it's a lot easier for the regulators to mount up because of the internet. But I do think that there has been a level of, we're going to try to get this guy fired. And I say this is somebody who's had plenty of people try to get me fired, but like, I'm going to try to get this person fired for whatever reason. I do think we go to that card a little bit too heavy and there's a point, but also there are things that are legitimately beyond the pale. And those things don't get you canceled, but they do get you fired. They've gotten you fired forever. These things have happened. Like, there's not anything new. But the people who want to be able to say the most outlandish things, or at least things that I term to be outlandish, 
are the same ones that want to set fire to all these books. And there's just no self-awareness about this fact because it's not about self-awareness and it makes you understand or makes you at least wonder if it's about any level of principle, at least a positive one. And it doesn't seem to be that. Make one last point. The whole thing about parents' rights with schools. Dog, y'all don't know nothing about teaching. Like it's the parents' right to what? Y'all don't know how to do this job. I don't know how to do this job. What are you talking about, right? But what is it? Again, crumbling faith in institutions. People don't trust the institutions, and so therefore it's every man for himself. Schooling is not built to be an every man for himself situation. Like schooling is intended, and there are some problems with this, but the truth is it's with the expectation that we're coming from an agreement or at least on some set of facts and some set of ideas, and then we build off of that. And that foundation of what we agree on don't just don't seem to exist. All right, this last one comes from business. Hi, Bamani. It's Jean Sahadi of CNN Business. Fidelity Investments, which is the largest provider of 401k plans in the United States, made a big move in the past week, one that will bring crypto investing much more into the mainstream. It announced that by the middle of this year, it would offer Bitcoin as one of its core investment options for employers that use its 401k platform. That platform is huge with 23,000 plans on it, representing more than 20 million retirement savers. Now, if you're one of them, the only way you'll have access to the Bitcoin option is if your employer decides to include it in its menu of investments. Fidelity didn't say how many employers have signed on to the new offering, but it did say a number have already committed, others are currently evaluating it, and it expects to hear from yet more clients now that the news is public. If your company does decide to offer Bitcoin in its 401k plan, there will be limits set on how much you can invest in your digital asset account. So for instance, your employer may say you can direct up to 5% of your regular contributions to buying Bitcoin. And Fidelity in any case won't allow anyone on the platform to direct more than 20%. There will also be a limit set on how many trades you can make in your digital account in any given month. The reason for the limits is simple. 401ks are intended to provide you with long-term financial security in retirement and are not the place to bet the farm or day trade on a single extremely volatile asset class like crypto. Yeah, I feel like they're like, hey, if you want... We could take your retirement account to Vegas, see how we come out. What'd you think? You think it'll you think it's a good idea? I mean, it's your call. You decide. So uh I understand that the youngsters and the newbies see crypto as the future and they don't want to listen to nothing that no not even I mean, I won't say old person, but not even old person. Y'all don't even want I I don't think I'm old, but y'all don't want to hear nothing that I gotta say about this sort of thing. Okay, fine. That's what it is. All right. I just want you to hear something that I read that uh, Warren Buffett said. And I think this is an important point about crypto. And it's a much better expression of this. I have tried to make similar points, but I think this probably expresses it better than I could. He says, if you said for 1% interest in all the farmland in the United States, pay our group $25 billion, I'll write you a check this afternoon. By the way, flex. $25 billion, now I own 1% of the farmland. You offer me 1% of all the apartment houses in the country and you want another $25 billion, I'll write you a check. It's very simple. Now, if you told me you own all the Bitcoin in the world and you offered it to me for $25, I wouldn't take it because what would I do with it? I'd have to sell it back to you one way or another. It isn't going to do anything. The apartments are going to produce rent and the farms are going to produce food. Let me go another level for you. Assets to have value have to deliver something to somebody, and there's only one currency that's accepted. You can come up with all kinds of things. We can put up Berkshire coins, but in the end, this is money, said holding up a $20 bill. 
There's no reason in the world why the United States is going to let Berkshire money replace theirs. All I'm trying to say to you, this is me right now. Do you understand why I think this is a con? Like when you think about it in those terms, you're deriving a valuation for something that doesn't produce a thing and is ultimately not even tangible in any sort of way, right? Well, I guess that's not fair, but you know what I mean. This is why it screams out con is this right here. Like, I feel like that's a very smart man that is telling you like, hey guys, stop and think about what it is that you're doing with this funny money. It doesn't produce a thing. My homeboy, I'll wrap it with this. He said, the funny money doesn't produce a thing. All it produces is cost. And that's the way that I put it. The way that I put it is what we're basically doing with this crypto because of the environmental toll that it takes and the ridiculous level of energy and electricity that's needed to mine the stuff. You're trading the earth for money. That's all you're trying to do. And in the end, when that stuff turns out not to be worth anything, like if that happens, you just burn the earth for literally no reason. At least styrofoam keep your drink cold. Hey, this is Bomani. You have reached the right time voicemail. Say whatever you want. Get creative with it. But this is your place to talk back to the show. So talk back. Peace. So voicemail topic for this week. Quit your job in the middle of the shift. Done in the past. Good results. Our first one comes from my man, Dan. No location. Here it is. This is March of 1990, and I'm working at Subway. I'm getting ready to go in the Air Force, so I was a short timer. But I brought my... 12-inch black-and-white TV and put it in the back so I could watch March Madness while I was working my shift. My boss came in and said, why is that TV in the back? And so I said, well, I want to watch March Madness. And so you know, but just for everyone else that's listening, in 1990, March Madness was not ubiquitous everywhere. You couldn't just get it on your phone. This was on broadcast TV. So he said, you can't have your TV back here while you're working. I said, it's in the back. And I'm serving the customers, what's the problem? He said, no, you have to get that out of here. So I said, okay, fine. I went back, I grabbed my TV, I said, I quit. And I walked out across the street to the bar where my buddy was working, put my TV on the bar, said, give me a beer, and I watched the rest of the March Madness that day from the bar across the street. <laughs> Yo, first of all, I do love the idea that you were just like, fine. And I ain't, I was quitting job because I wanted to go to Mardi Gras. They wouldn't give me the days off. And it was enough time out that I could give two weeks. And so I just quit. Uh, and then they told me I could stay. It was weird. But anyway, I do think though, I went to the bar across the street and I broke out my own 13 inch TV. Now, while in 1990, March Madness was not ubiquitous, but it was on CBS. And I do feel like by then, the bar should have had its own television. Like, like your boy worked there and you couldn't even get him, get him to put it on the screen. That was my favorite part of it, too, because it was almost as if like, yo, I'm going to turn to true TV and the bar's got CBS TV on. Yes. So we got multiple yes. games in this situation. Was that the case back in 1990? No! The tournament was like the Red Zone channel. It's the original Red Zone channel. They just pop you in. Like if you didn't have a local game, they just pop you in and let you like the tournament was so much better when they told us what to watch. Now I got to remember what a, a, one of these eight channels and flipping around trying to get to the game and all that stuff. They would just be like, yo, it's coming down to the wire. And then you go in and you watch the good game. All right. This next one, no name or location. Here it is. 
back in uh, high school, maybe about five years ago, I used to work at this burger joint called Jake's Wayback. You know, we would close at 9, but if people came in before 9, you know, we would cook food until 9.30, you know, if we had to. So one night around 8.30 or so, you know, being in a college town, we uh, we would get sometimes the teams would come. And around 8.30, the Virginia Tech track team pulled up in their big charter bus. And we were like, oh, you know, we're going to be cooking until 9.15, 9.30. We're not going to have this place closed till 10, 10.15. But, you know, we were like, okay, this has happened before, but we'll hang in there, you know. And then about 8.55, right before we were about to close the doors, the Wake Forest track team shows up. And my coworker, James, looked at us and said, all right, y'all, I'm clocking out. Y'all have a good rest <laughs> of your night. And uh, James never worked at Jake's way back again. <laughs> I can't blame him. What's interesting about that story to me is, like, I would remember in high school, you know, because – I went to school in a small town, so when we go basketball games and ride back on the bus, we would always stop somewhere at some McDonald's, and it would just be a bunch of quarter pounders, right? Like, we would get there, and we'd pull the bus up, and I know that in 1994, we wasn't pulling up, and they just magically had, like, 40 quarter pounders ready. It's not possible. So we must have been calling ahead. They ain't even let y'all know they was coming. I can't even blame the man for walking out on that one. If he had had a heads up, that'd have been one thing. If I think I'm getting off work at 1030, I'm getting off work at 1030. I realized that. I had to tell my team that on game theory. I realized that. I was like, so guys, if you tell me we're going to be out here for 12 hours, I'll be good for 12 hours. If you tell me we're going to be out here for 45 minutes, I'll be good for 45 minutes. But at minute 46, I'm ready to go because you told me I'd be out of here in 45 minutes. This last one, another known name or location. Here it is. So I used to work at a certain chicken establishment. I was the assistant GM. And um, we had this one cook who didn't work long with us at this point in time. So he came in one day. He was just mad and irate about something that happened on the day when I wasn't even there. Like, he was just in my face, just yelling, hollering. He almost spit in my face at one point in time, but I tried my best to remain calm. But he didn't know my GM was there also. So they get into it, and eventually he just says, you know what, today going to be my last day. <laughs> and my GM was like, no, if you're going to quit, then quit. So he said, you know what, screw it, I quit. And then he left, and he walked out. So that day I had to be the cook. And then about five minutes later, he's banging on the door, banging on the door. So he says, oh, by the way, can I get my check? So he got his check, and then he left. And then he called the store back a couple hours later with one of my all-time favorite quotes. Where's my money, and who the hell is FICA? <laughs> so hold up. It wasn't his first check? Like he had never got a check before? He quit his job before he even got his first check? Wow. Wow, man. But by the way, <laughs> poor assistant GM where the GM decided to flex, it meant like the GM was going to hit the grill. He was like, quit, don't quit. I ain't going to be frying up these burgers, these chickens, excuse me. Now, I'm not going to say the name, but I can smell the honey butter biscuits from here. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Gabe Bassane handles everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Also, thanks to our If You Haven't Heard contributors. Thanks to Elamine Abdel Mahmoud of BuzzFeed. Check out his story on this little man getting a little bit taller. Thanks to Annie Gowen of the Washington Post. Check out her story on Texas residents 
trying to get a librarian fired and suing the county for removing books. And thank you to Jean Saidi of CNN Business. Check out her story of Fidelity Soon offering Bitcoin as a 401k option. Remember, follow the right time. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy. Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Right Time with Bomani Jones.